0: and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Journey and I am joined here today by the lovely Nicole and Rebecca. This week Rebecca is going to be telling us all about the case of the Shrebrenica massacre and Nicole will be educating us on the science of forensic botany and palynology and how they played an instrumental role in this case which is actually pretty interesting so I'm excited to hear all about that. Um, I would like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised, as there are detailed descriptions of mass murder and genocide in this episode. And with that being said, I will pass it over to
1: Rebecca to tell us all about the Srebrenica massacre. Thank you. Um, So, just to begin this conversation, um, I want to go into a bit of the history of what kind of led to the tragic events in 1995. And before that, I do want to note that this is my best attempt at a Coles note version of the history of Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, because their history is much more complicated than I anticipated. So I'm going to kind of go into like the political history of it right now, because it was a civil war that kind of caused the Strabenica massacre in the first place. So... Bosnia and Herzegovina were ruled by the Ottoman Empire since the 15th century, until being occupied by the Austria-Hungary military in 1878. In 1908, the Austro-Hungarian government annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, which caused a lot of tension among nationalists who were supporting the idea of a unified South Slavic state, and this included Bosnia and Herzegovina. So, on June 28th of 1914, a young Bosnian revolutionist who was a revolutionist uh, that was fighting for the unification of Bosnia and Herzegovina into either Serbia or Yugoslavia, uh, he murdered the heir to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian throne. So, this assassination set off a series of events that eventually would lead into World War I in 1918. So after World War 1, Bosnia and Herzegovina were incorporated into the South Slav Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. When Bosnia and Herzegovina joined Yugoslavia, which just note first of all South Slav Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes a couple of years later was renamed to the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, so I might use those interchangeably. Um There was a lot of social and economic unrest with mass colonization and confiscation of people's properties occurring. So during this time, there was significant conflict between the ideologies of the different ethnic groups that resided in the country. And this led to a lot of tension within the country and its population. Through this time, South Slav kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes was split into 33 oblasts, which is basically a division of the country, which to my understanding was sort of like how Canada is divided into provinces. Um, However, the leaders of Bosnia and Herzegovina ensured that the six oblasts of Bosnia and Herzegovina, because the 33 made up like Bosnia and a couple other countries within Yugoslavia, Um, They made sure that the six oblasts of Bosnia and Herzegovina were divided in a way that still respected the boundaries, uh, like the ethnic boundaries that were created during the Ottoman Empire, which ensured that there was little change to the ethnic groups and the traditions of every region. So in 1929, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia was established. So this incorporated the same countries as the South Slav Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. And with this, the country's borders once again were redrawn. However, the way in which the leaders redrew the country lines this time completely ignored the historical and ethnic borders of the Ottoman Empire, and this caused a lot of unrest and sense of a loss of ethnic identity to a lot of the native Bosnians. So fast-forwarding a little to World War II, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia was invaded and conquered by the German Nazi Party. So after Yugoslavia was conquered, Bosnia and Herzegovina became part of the independent state of Croatia, which was controlled by the Ustaše. So throughout their control, the Ustaše set up concentration camps and murdered approximately 209,000 Serbs in Bosnia and Herzegovina over World War II. Um, they did also target other ethnic groups. However, the Serbs of the time were kind of who was. Targeted the most in Bosnia specifically. So during their control, the Ustase recognized both Catholicism and Islam as national religions. However, they denounced the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is what most of the Serbs followed. In retaliation of this genocide, the Serbs joined the Chetniks, which was the Yugoslavia army, in a nationalist movement to create a state within the kingdom of Yugoslavia, specifically for Serbs to reign over. However, to do so, they planned a genocide against Muslims and Croats living in Yugoslavia. So in total, um, of the 75 Muslims and Croats that were killed during World War II, Thirty thousand of them were killed specifically by the Chetniks during this ethnic genocide. So it was kind of like, it was kind of like the Srebrenica massacre, but in World War II. Which I didn't even like. I didn't realize that this happened twice in history so soon after each other. That was really interesting, but also very sad to learn about.
0: It's really. I'm glad you did um, the history of it because it's kind of nice to see how like the Muslims and the Serbs have kind of interacted like throughout history and like it kind of makes why this happened a little bit
1: easier to understand. I completely agree. It's yeah they they've definitely had a very turbulent history um, yeah. and like I said at the beginning like going into this I was like oh it's you know just learning about history of a country but it's so much political like unrest and change throughout like just the past 100 years that it's it can be quite confusing. Yeah, definitely. So, fast forwarding um a little past World War II. So, really one year after World War II, um the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia was formed in 1946, replacing the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. Um, and this made Bosnia and Herzegovina one of six constituent republics in this new state of Yugoslavia. So the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia ruled from 1946 until 1992. And in this time, it became a hotspot for the development of the military defense industry. For a long time, Bosnia, despite development of the military defense, actually became quite a peaceful place and began to thrive economically. Um, they had very high employment rates. Their astronomy, their astronomy, goodness. Um, their economy started growing, and they developed a pretty good education and healthcare system as well. Um, And just to give a few examples of how well Bosnia was doing in their time in terms of like where they had come from, uh, companies such as Coca-Cola and Volkswagen had major production factories there. And the 1984 Winter Olympics were actually held in the capital. So moving on from that, in 1990, parliamentary elections were held, which resulted in the end of communism in the Republic of Yugoslavia. And it began the coalition of three ethnically based parties. And these were the Bosniaks, the Croats, and the Serbs. And then this is where stuff began to get a little more rocky leading up to the war. So the topic of declaring independence from Yugoslavia had divided the coalition parties, with the Serbs strongly favoring to stay within Yugoslavia, um, and the Bosniaks and Croats wanted to seek independence. This resulted in the Serb members of the coalition um, actually abandoning the coalition and starting their own group, which was called the Assembly of the Serb People of Bosnia and Herzegovina in October of 1991. And due to this event, the coalition of the three ethnic groups had ended. And soon after, the Croatian Democratic Union had declared the new existence of the Croatian community of Herzeg, Bosnia, with a military branch of its own, which they called the Croatian Defense Council or HVO. And then on February 29th, or March 1st, or sorry, both days of 1992, a referendum for independence from Yugoslavia was announced. However, the vast majority of Serbs, who now within the country were actually a minority group, um, had boycotted Bosnia's independence. So in total, um, 63.4% of Bosnia and Herzegovina's population ended up turning out for the vote for or against independence. And of those who voted, 99.7% voted in favor of independence from Yugoslavia. So vast, vast majority. It's like we're basically talking like Lysol wipes, killing germs. Um, because of this very large favor of independence, Bosnia and Herzegovina officially declared independence in on March 3rd of 1992, and they were admitted as a member state of the UN in May of 1992. So this was essentially the beginning of the Bosnian war, the Civil War, during which the Srebrenica massacre had occurred. So with that somewhat lengthy Coles notes out of the way of the political atmosphere of Bosnia and Herzegovina, we can start kind of discussing exactly what the Srebrenica massacre was. It's important to note first that neither side of this story is fully innocent. It was a tragedy and there were thousands of thousands of lives that were lost. However, it was a war and we did have lives lost on both sides. There is so much controversy surrounding this massacre and the war that there were a lot of political games played during it. And so this information that we're relaying might be flawed. And if it is, we apologize, but we are doing our best to give the most accurate information as possible. So a lot of the numbers given to the press about what happened were greatly exaggerated. So again, we're doing the best we can, but if we are under or overestimating, we do apologize. Um, and I do know that Journey knows someone personally who was a peacekeeper in Bosnia at this time. However, we didn't feel it was appropriate to ask for an interview, both due to the severe secrecy surrounding this event even to this day, as well as the trauma related to it that might still cause a lot of people a lot of great kind of anguish to talk about. So before getting into the rest of it, um, I just wanted to note that I have been pronouncing um, the municipality wrong of Srebrenica. I've been saying Srebrenica. It's actually Srebrenica. So I will pronounce it correctly from here on out, and I apologize for the past ten minutes. Um, yeah, moving along. Okay, so. The new independence of Bosnia had essentially began a civil war because the Bosnian Muslims wanted independence, but the Radovan Karadzic, who was the Bosnian Serb leader, said that the Muslims couldn't defend themselves if a civil war broke out in their country. So he didn't believe they should be independent. However, he then proceeded to start a civil war with the Muslims. So don't know what that's about, but moving on. In 1992, Bosnian Serb forces had targeted Srebrenica to uh, seize control over the block of territory in eastern Bosnia and Herzegovina with the goal to annex this land and dispel the Bosnian inhabitants. So in April of 1993, the UN Security Council designated Srebrenica a safe area where it was free from any armed attack or hostile act. 48 hours after this announcement, the Bosnian Serb army agreed to a ceasefire in exchange for the UN Protection Force for Bosnia and Herzegovina, or the UNPROFOR, um, to disarm the safe area of Srebrenica. And this meant that most of the armed Muslims left Srebrenica as part of the disarming agreement. Throughout this time, Serbs residing in Bosnia had mobilized militias all over the country, and due to this increased diplomatic pressure occurring because of this recent independence, the Yugoslav People's Army, who were meant to protect Bosnia and Herzegovina, also withdrew from the country in June 1992, which did end up leaving their military equipment and stockpiles behind. Um, so after the declaration of a safe zone in Srebrenica, many people ended up fleeing there during the Civil War to ensure um, their safety because it was declared safe. And approximately forty-five to 50,000 people from around the country ended up fleeing to Srebrenica. So... After this, it was a couple of years later in March of 1995 that Radovan Karatsik, uh, who was the president of the Republic Srpska, um, which is the Bosnian Serb Republic, filed a directive to, quote, create an unbearable situation of total insecurity with no hope of further survival or life for the inhabitants of Srebrenica, unquote. So he was a brutal and straightforward man. And by May, there was an embargo on food and supplies to Srebrenica, which led to many Bosniak, which are Bosnian Muslims specifically, if we say Bosniak, um, caused many of those fighters to flee the town. In July of 1995, on July 6th specifically the BSA, which is the Bosnian Serb army, had started moving in towards Srebrenica from the south. And during the next five days, 25 to 30,000 civilians fled Srebrenica for Podokari and stayed at the UN base there. On July 11th, the leader of the BSA, whose name was Ratko Mladic, um, was filmed walking through Srebrenica and said, quote, we give this town to the Serb nation The time has come to take revenge on the Muslims. So, during the night of July 11th, more than 10,000 Bosniak men left Srebrenica through the forest to try and reach somewhere safe. However, the following morning, the Serbs had tricked those who fled to come to safety by stealing UN officers' uniforms and then dressing up as the UN officers. Many of the men gave themselves up or were captured by these Serbian individuals dressed as UN officials, and lots more were then executed. Not everyone who fled during this attempt um, got caught, and in the YouTube video that we watched, we did get to hear a story of one of the survivors who now works at the Memorial of Podokare, and we will link that video as well in our sources if you're interested in listening to it. Um, but the Bosniaks who did make it to Podokare were then forced out of Potocari through the use of terror on July 12th and 13th. I am not entirely sure what terror means specifically, but it is war, so I don't think it takes too much to fill in the gaps here. The women, children, and elderly were placed on buses and driven to Bosniak-held territory as the Serbs were not interested in murdering them. I'm not sure the purpose as it was a genocide. However, I'm sure it was still no vacation for them to be in these uh, territories while their sons and fathers are at war with the Serbs.
0: Like, that doesn't make sense to me, because why would you save the women, children and the elderly if you're planning on committing genocide? Like, I don't understand the point
1: I agree because it's kind of like, generally speaking, in a genocide, the purpose is like to basically make an ethnic group go extinct Mm -hmm. is my understanding of a genocide. So yeah, doing that doesn't make much sense. I'm thankful they did it because at least women, children and elderly were able to get out of this terrible situation. Mm -hmm. But still, I agree. It's yeah, it's it's, it's it's unusual. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So the men and boys of fighting age um, were taken to various holding sites around Bosnia, and with the majority of them going to Bratnak. The executions began on July 13th, where the men were often blindfolded and had their hands and feet tied together. They weren't hogtied, but their feet were tied together, and then their hands were tied together individually, but hands and feet were not all together, if that makes sense. And in addition to this, their bodies also showed signs of mutilation. The executions took place in locations north of Srebrenica, along the Drina River for about 55 kilometers. Um, This river marks the border of Serbia and Bosnia, and the locations where the executions had taken place include a football field. In Bratenac, a bunch of meadows and fields ne- near near Vlasenica and Nova Casaba, a warehouse in Kravikia, a factory in Kar- Karakai, a school in Orahovac, a dirt road in the Sirska Valley, as well as a cultural center in Pelikia. So they really held these executions um, every space they had essentially. And I'm I am just speculating here, but it feels a little bit like they might have held them in so many places that are usually quite public because they wanted to strike fear in the people still there or the people watching this from like the sidelines sort of thing. These executions lasted for three days and they concluded with the killing of hundreds more people at a state farm in Bronhevo between July 13th and 16th of 1995, With most of them occurring on the um, earlier side of this date time, uh, as excavators actually arrived on July 14th and 15th to begin removing the bodies that were killed at this location. There's a video of Serbian police officers um, who were actually not part of the BSA uh, killing a group of six Bosniaks. And this is one of the only videos that we actually have today that shows the killing of the Bosniaks, which While I'm sure it is very um, gruesome and horrifying to watch, at the same time, we do still need this part of history to understand what happened and to improve further. The total number of people who were killed has always been a debated number. The government of the Republika Srpska had issued an apology for the, quote, enormous crimes unquote, in Srebrenica, and they acknowledged that an estimated 7,800 people had died. Not all sources agree with that number, but it has been generally accepted that around 7,000 people had died, and some estimates even place that number closer to 8,000. In September and October of 1995, the BSA began a process of locating the graves and identifying victims in order to hide traces of the Srebrenica crimes, and the BSA actually used tractors and backhoes to dig up the mass graves and move the bodies to other distant sites. These sites were later located, thankfully, with satellite photographs. There were years of analysis done on these bodies, They compared soil and tissue samples, shell casings, pollen, and clothing fragments, all to find where these people were killed and how they were moved to their final resting site. In early 2010, the International Commission on Missing Persons had actually used DNA samples to identify more than 6,400 individual victims of this massacre, and using about seven DNA match reports in order to make an identification. Generally, they needed to have three DNA reference samples per missing person or body. In terms of pressing charges on those who committed these atrocities, there were more than 19,473 people who the Bosnian Serb government said were implicated in these killings, And in 2005, when this report was released, hundreds of the almost 20,000 still held government jobs. In April of 2013, the president of Serbia, who was Tomislav Nikolic, issued a formal apology for the crime that had been committed, but he would not call the event a genocide. The UN Criminal Tribunal ended up indicting 21 people for their involvement in the Srebrenica massacre, in 2001, Radislav Kurstik was convicted of aiding and abetting genocide and murder. He was the commander of the Bosnian Serb Corps that was responsible for the Srebrenica massacre. Or the, the massacre in the Srebrenica area. My apologies. And in 2003, Momir Nikolik pled guilty to committing crimes against humanity. And both of these men received very long prison sentences. Going back to 2010, again, um, the tribunal convicted two of the chiefs of security for the Bosnian Serb military, whose names were uh, Vyushiodin Popovic and Lubisa Biera of Genocide. I apologize if I messed up those names. I tried my best. Um, these men were also sentenced to life in prison. Drago Nikolic, who was a Bosnian Serb officer, was given a 35-year sentence also for abetting genocide. Radovan Karadzic was located and arrested in 2008, and his trial had begun in 2009. His trial went on until 2016, and in March of the same year, he also was found guilty of genocide in nine other war crimes and crimes against humanity. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison, and his case was actually under appeal in 2018 with the Mechanism for International Criminal Tribunals, or the MICT. Ratkom Mladic was a fugitive until May 2011, when he was caught in Serbia and extradited to the Hague for trial. And in November of 2017, he was found guilty of genocide as well, and also war crimes and crimes against humanity. Like the others, he was sentenced to life in prison.
0: It's crazy to me that, um, like, Radovan, Karadzic and Ratko Mladic could just be, like, in the wind for so long after this happened.
1: I know. I don't under—like, where did they go? Right. And how did—how was there not, like—I don't—I don't know if, like— fbi's most wanted the tv (laughs) show was around at that time i don't remember when that came out even 2011 but i feel like
0: like he wasn't caught until 2011 like there's got to be something
1: yeah true like there's 7 billion people in this world you think someone would have saw him and said something yeah you know like it's insane honestly how it took so long i'm glad they were punished but it wasn't enough of a punishment and they <laughs> lived free for way too long after these genocides. Literally, In my opinion, in my maybe gruesome opinion. No, I agree. <laughs> so next in July of 2011, a Dutch appeals court ruled that the Netherlands was responsible for the deaths of three Bosniak men. And these men were forced out of the UN compound in Potokari by Dutch troops and were subsequently killed during the massacre. This was the first time that a country had been held liable for the actions of its peacekeeping forces that were operating under a UN mandate. Three years later, in July of 2014, the Dutch government was found liable for the deaths of more than 300 Bosniak men and boys at Srebrenica, and it ruled that surviving relatives were entitled to compensation. These decisions also cleared the Netherlands of responsibility for the remainder of the thousands that were killed in the Srebrenica area. In June of 2017, it was ruled that the Netherlands were not only responsible for 10 to 30% of the casualties, because it is thought that the Bosnian Serbs would have seized the refugees regardless.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if they were going to get any, like, if they were going to be penalized in any way, because the Dutch peacekeepers were in charge of the, like, UN compound in Podokari. And I was like, how could they just take the Bosniak men from them with, like, no fight,
1: nothing? They just basically handed them right over. I was like, that seems so unfair. It does. Like, I really don't understand. I don't completely understand how the UN works. I know generally the UN itself can't do anything. It can kind of just set up, like, guidelines for the countries and, like, they can't punish countries i don't think i have no idea but still i feel like being a part of the un and also just being human beings with a conscience you should recognize not to give over refugees to their
0: captors well yeah it feels like if 25 to 30,000 people like came to your compound to, to seek like refuge you should maybe like keep them there or not just immediately send them back out to be murdered.
1: Yeah. Like maybe help them, especially given the UN already knew about the fact that they declared Srebrenica a safe zone. Exactly. And disarmed it because they were under the impression that disarming it would mean it would remain a safe zone.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. There's just a lot about this that could have been prevented if like government entities actually tried harder to enforce what they were saying. Yeah, Definitely. So in 2015, Serbian authorities arrested eight men that were accused of killing some of the 1,000 Bosniaks in the Krav- Kravica warehouse. This was the first time that the Serbian government actually pressed criminal charges in connection with the Srebrenica massacre. And then four months after this major genocide, the civil war had finally ended. So. Just for some final notes and stats on the Srebrenica massacre, 40,000 people went missing in Bosnia, and over 70% have been accounted for. And while that is good, I'm not good at math, but 30% of 40,000 is still a lot of people not to be accounted for. I hope they find justice, but it's hard to say. Um, moving on from that, They have been able to identify almost 90% of the 8,000 people missing from Srebrenica specifically, and they wanted to kill all the Bosnian Muslim men of fighting age and make it impossible for the Bosnian Muslim people of Srebrenica to survive, thus making this massacre an act of genocide, which, as we were saying earlier, while it is great that they did release children and women, it is bizarre that they did that because this is definitely a genocide. They're trying to erase an ethnic population. Yeah, I don't have anywhere else really to go with that. It's just a very cruel but small blessing that at least some of the population was spared. Um, so that in itself is what is considered fact of the Srebrenica massacre, Um, And now that we've kind of gone over what's generally accepted, I just wanted to go a little bit into some of the theories of like why the massacre had occurred or like the causes of it. Uh, These are considered theories as there's simply not enough information to actually confirm any of these statements. Um, But various articles and publications and researchers state these for being potential alternatives to the cause and purpose. So one of them is that the deniers of the massacre used the violent acts committed by the Bosniaks against the Serbs during the Civil War to kind of excuse what happened in Srebrenica. So, for example, the town of Srebrenica was taken by the Serbs in April of 1992, but not for that long uh, because the ruthless Muslim commander Nasser Oric regained control of the town and took over the whole surrounding district. By December, they had conquered a lot more land as well and had killed over 1,300 Serbian men, women and children. Nasser Oric was quite the warlord and did commit many atrocity, atrocious acts. Sorry, However, I don't think his actions quite warranted mass executions of the Srebrenica people. Uh, the Serbs also use this theory to explain their actions, and there have been claims um, that they have greatly exaggerated the number of people actually killed in the attacks. There is a- another theory that people think that pulling the armed Muslims out of Srebrenica was actually them acting as a sacrifice in order to get help from the U.S. government. The Bosnian Muslim leaders were struggling for many years with the BSA, and they were reaching out to the USA for help. It is alleged that President Bill Clinton told the Bosnian Muslim leader that the USA would only help them if the Serbs had killed at least 5,000 people. And so it is alleged that the abandonment of Srebrenica by armed Bosnian Muslims before the massacre was done strategically to actually get help from the West to kind of end this
0: war. That's so crazy to me that they would just, like,
1: sacrifice their people. Like, if that's true, that's bonkers. I know. Like, I'm hoping it's not true because that's so cruel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really don't have any words for that. Like, to use your own population as a sacrifice is... And I know it's happened, like, countless times throughout history, but it doesn't make it okay. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, it's... These kind of things are so sad. They're so hard to talk about, but they're so important. Um, another theory was that 8,000 represents the number of people missing, not necessarily the number of people executed. So this number is thought to be exaggerated in order to get NATO to intervene on behalf of the Bosniaks, who, again, just for a refresher, are the Bosnian Muslims, um, for help in the civil war. This number is based on the alleged 3,000 people who were detained by the Bosnian Serbs, plus 5,000 who fled Srebren- Srebrenica towards central Bosnia. Also, I apologize for when I occasionally say Srebrenica wrong. My tongue and brain don't read that word the same, and there's a delay. <laughs> um It is reported that some of the 5,000 people who fled did end up making it to their destination. However, the Bosnian Muslim government refuses to release names, so the number didn't end up changing. It is also alleged with this that the lists were made, um, sorry, the lists that were made included many mistakes, including that they had names written down twice. They included people who died before 1995, those who fled to avoid being required to fight, and also included people who registered to vote in 1997, as well as people who have been noted to have fled and started nude life elsewhere. So basically, it's believed by some that the kind of missing and murdered list is also made up of people who are very much not missing and murdered, but just kind of to fill space.
0: Yeah, it was really weird to watch the YouTube video that we watched and then read this article because they like they contrasted each other so much. And like the article was like, yeah, this is all fact. And then the YouTube video was like this is all fact, and they were two completely separate things. And I was
1: like, that makes it so difficult. Like I hate the fact that this is a legit thing that happened in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even that long ago. We had cameras and news outlets and we had very easy capability of getting news worldwide yeah and yet no one I mean obviously some people know what's fact but like commonly known we still don't know for certain basically like what to put in the history textbooks
0: exactly and like who were the people who were like writing this article like what kind of biases did they hold? Like, are they super racist as well? Or like, what's their motivation for writing something like this? And it's like, exactly. The video was made by like, um, people who work with the UN. So it's like, well, they obviously want to make sure that their story's right. But it's, yeah, it was just so weird to have so much conflicting information and be like, I have no idea what to put in this episode. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. It's very much kind of like how they say, like only the hero, the heroes, sorry, the people who write the history textbooks are always the heroes of the story. Mm-hmm. Like it's and because it happened so recently, we do have different accounts of what happened because we like both sides of this event are still alive. Yeah. Right. And that's like so, listening to the guy talk in the YouTube
0: video who survived it. I was like, I'm going to take your word for it. Like you were there. You survived.
1: Exactly. Like, there's just so much unknown, mm -hmm. because so many people have a different idea of fact, depending on what they live through. Exactly. So just a couple more, like, I have two more bullet points of theory, and then we can pass it on to Nicole. Um some people also think that not all of the bodies found can actually be linked to the massacre and that the BSA wouldn't have had time to move all the bodies from their primary location to their secondary burial locations. Um, also, that they wouldn't have been able to do this without satellite images of them moving the bodies. And then finally, in excerpts from the above trials that we had mentioned, um, the accused say things uh, like... Nothing happened in Srebrenica, but that it happened 80 to 100 kilometers away. And also that it had nothing to do with harming the civilian population. This wraps up sort of like what is known, like we kind of shared the, the political history of what led up to it, and then the facts we do know or can hopefully confirm of the massacre. And then some theories that are widely believed, but we don't necessarily have enough information to confirm whether or not these... Counts are accurate.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. With like that last point, it just like nothing happened in Srebrenica, but that it happened eighty to hundred kilometers away. Like technically, they're right, <laughs> but also like it. Yeah, I don't know. That I'm like technically you're right, but not really. And then like that, it had nothing to do with harming the civilian population. It's like, who did you kill, if not civilians?
1: Exactly. Clearly, it was something to do with harming the civilian population. Mm-hmm. And technically, yes, it was 80 to 100 kilometers away. However, it's because you led people out of Srebrenica to these destinations. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It was wild. <laughs> yeah. That's... I actually didn't know anything about this prior to us, like, discussing future topics a while ago so I really appreciate this um history lesson I honestly can't believe this isn't more of a commonly known thing like it's so many people died and it was such a terrible thing that happened so recently yeah
0: yeah no I hadn't really like I hadn't really heard anything until we started talking about it and then I was googling it and I was like oh my goodness like I think I know someone who was over there like during this time. Like, that's crazy.
1: But it's. Yeah, it, well, exactly. We're. This happened so recently that we have people like, not even, you know, like grandparents, all that stuff. Like, literally, like our parents' age that mm-hmm. we actually experienced this firsthand.
0: Literally. And yeah, like, even from what they said, like, it was so. Everything over there was so like hush hush and just like terrible and so i was like I'm, oh i can imagine i'm not gonna be asking any like expanding questions on this like i can't even imagine what it was like over there dealing with that like
1: yeah crazy. no very
0: fair i <laughs> but yeah thank but you. uh
1: y- yeah no problem um yeah happy to share some history <laughs> definitely is awesome And now
0: we'll pass it on over to Nicole to tell us more about forensic botany and forensic
2: palynology. Yeah. So for this episode, like Journey just said, I'm going to give a bit of a brief overview on what forensic botany is and then dive a bit further into forensic palynology. I would also like to give Journey a huge thank you for her behind the scenes work on this episode. Um, Not only this one, but all of them. Rebecca and I had some traveling to do and stuff got in the way and Uh, Journey really took the reins on this episode, so everyone go thank her for the existence (laughs) of this. Um, But anyways, to start, botany is the study of plants, and so, as we can imagine by now, forensic botany is, you guessed it, uh, the use of plants and plant parts in investigations to ascertain cause of death or link to other crime scenes. So basically, it's just forensic botany being used in a legal setting. These plant parts can include pollen, seeds, leaves, flowers, fruit, and wood. And plants are useful sources of biological evidence because they can exhibit physiological responses that are representative of the environments they exist in. So this means that they can really help pinpoint and give um, investigators a better idea as to, you know, certain circumstances associated with the given crime. Uh, botanical evidence has been used since the end of about the late 1800s. And interestingly, one of the first publicized or first highly publicized cases, excuse me, where botanical evidence was used was in the disappearance and murder of the Lindbergh baby. Um, We did have a episode or we do have an episode about this. It's episode 29. We cover the Lindbergh kidnapping and forensic document examination. I will say I do have the world's worst memory, but on top of that, I don't remember hearing much about botanical evidence when we did our research. Um, I could be incredibly wrong on that, so I'll have to go back and listen, but
0: it was mostly just proving that the ladder was where it was due to like impressions on the grass and that like matching the wood of the ladder to like wood near the window kind of thing, like it was. (laughs) <laughs> kind of abstract like that, but yeah. Okay. As far as I know. So,
2: yeah. Okay. Well, we don't really go into depth in that in our episode since our f- main focus was uh, document examination, but definitely give it a listen. It was an interesting one. Um, but in addition to having experience examining and even just kind of knowing about a vast amount and of various plants – Forensic botanists also need to have an understanding of the ecological and environmental significance and impacts of these materials. So their knowledge isn't just limited to plants on lands. And this is just as though like crime scenes aren't limited to strictly land. So bodies can be found in water, which means in water there are often plants and this evidence then falls under forensic botany. So they have to be well versed in pretty well everything um, relating to plants and plant life. And molecular plant biology is another critical topic that must be understood. And what I find fascinating is that these botanists are also versed in understanding the possibility of growing plants on other planets. So just kind of getting an understanding of, you know, how how they may be able to grow, how they may be able to reproduce, what environments they need to um exist in. And I always think of the movie, I think it's Martian with uh Matt Damon. I don't know if you guys have seen that. I think he's like growing potatoes or some whatever on the planet, but... That's cool. Highly recommend. Yeah.
1: Yeah, sorry. He does grow potatoes and it's such a good movie. He grows them in his own poop. Yeah!
2: <laughs> So, forensic botany, learn how to do that on different planets. So, botanical evidence can provide information that links a suspect to a crime scene or, um, you know, possible victims to crime scenes or dis- uh, discovery scenes, they're called. So, if they were moved. Um, but unfortunately, it's only circumstantial evidence in a way, like you can link objects found at scenes and you can determine the place or time of an incident. You can prove or disprove alibis and show like travel histories of objects or people's, but it's not the same sort of evidence as you would get with like DNA or that, that hard gold standard. Um, so it definitely has to be taken into consideration um, and considered in context to other evidence found on scene. Uh, This type of evidence, though, can also tell investigators where an object or person was staying before death and can even determine the origin of food and or drugs that may be relevant to the case. While we would think that a forensic botanist's main job would be to help link murders and crime scenes, it's actually to help identify um, and determine poisonings that have happened, any illegal imports that may be going on, um, whether there are non, non-native plants, so any invasive species, and to identify psychogenic or narcotic species that exist. Some plants do need specific habitat requirements. So when they are present or they are, you know, pieces of evidence, it can indicate where the incident took place and if anything was moved or disturbed um, at that crime scene. So if you're going to find like a rare tropical plant in the middle of Alaska, you're probably going to be like, well, why is that there? Did someone come in from the desert today? I don't know. Uh, It gives you a little bit of context for that. Um one type of plant material that's super beneficial when it comes to investigations is moss, and that's kind of a huge score for investigators, apparently. Um, it can really easily attach to the soles of your shoes, so any footwear, and it can remain there after several hours of walking around. So that's one of the, not main, but an important piece of information or evidence investigators should first look for. Um, in any outdoor cases or any cases where, you know, by botanical evidence may be prevalent. Uh, It can also provide information pertaining to the time of death and when a body was found, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, Biological evidence can also include allergic reactions to certain plants as irritation of the skin is usually easily noticeable. Now to my knowledge, I'm not like, I'm unsure if skin irritation would be the main or only thing investigators would look for. One, because I would think dead people don't have that irritation and like, they don't have the physiological means to cause skin irritation. They are no longer alive. Um, Whether that happened prior to their death though, that could be a possibility. Um, And you know, when I think of allergic reactions to plants, I think of like seasonal sneezing, coughing, dry eye, or runny eyes, all of that stuff. So, again, not really applicable to not alive individuals, maybe to suspects if they were possibly in and around the area. Say they've got a birch allergy and their allergies or um, whatever the word is, they're serious right now. Well maybe it's not birch season. Why are you sneezing then? All of that stuff. Yeah.
0: I think kind of what they were meaning is like when you touch like poison ivy or stinging nettle mm-hmm. and you get all like those red bumps on your skin. Yeah. I think that's kind of more where they're going with that versus like the sneezing and the itchy eyes, which...
2: Yeah, the seasonal.
0: Even the, like, um, the red irritation marks or whatever will probably be pretty difficult to see on a decomposing body, but... Maybe yeah. if you get there in time?
2: I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say I could I like if you had stinging nettle or poison ivy, I feel like that would be present at least for a certain amount of time. Mhm. Yeah. During that decomp um stage, like I I'm curious to see like when that would fade or if it's I don't know. I have questions for forensic botanists if any of those listen to us. Like <laughs> I got questions for you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um But yes, anyhow, um, another way to help identify plant types is through plant DNA analysis. This can allow scientists to identify the species level of the plant that they are working with. But unfortunately, botanical evidence can degrade drastically or even become contaminated. So oftentimes, microRNA sequencing can be used instead of DNA analysis. With all of that being said, though, in a perfect world, you know, forensic botanists would have that entire plant to examine. They'd have a full leaf, a full grouping of this plant. But however, this more often than not is not the case. Plant evidence is generally found in small fragments, and this requires scientists to be able to identify, you know, a large number amount of species um, based on very small pieces present. So imagine getting a small piece of green and then being like, oh, what plant is this from? There's a lot. It could be a lot. So you got to be able to understand on more of a molecular cellular level um, how these plants differ. And to make things more fun and complicated, these botanists also need to be able to identify plant matter, um, not just existing out in the wild or on scenes, but also in you know, stuff like vomit and stomach contents in your intestines in your like upper airways and fecal matter. Like there's a whole bunch of different spaces that plant life can then exist and spread through that um, these botanists need to be considerate uh, or need to consider when um, continuing their examinations. But when When looking at this field of study in relation to the case and others that are similar to it, botanical evidence can be used to help find bodies. So by burying a body, this would disturb the surrounding environment and the ecology, which can be seen through, you know, like soil disturbances, any root destruction if you're going in with large shovels, um, changes in plant growth, all that fun stuff. So specific ecosystems that can form around these buried bodies are known as cadaver decomposition islands. And this will include like anomalies in vegetation, any changes in color, density, or phenology. So the nutrients released by the body, in addition to the aeration and loosening of soils, are all factors that can impact vegetation and growth, growth, excuse me and increased chlorophyll production can be ser- can be seen during these processes so like you can kind of imagine you know, first a body's buried there's some plant growth around it you've got an abnormal green brown grass patch that doesn't quite match up with everything else um then say there's nothing you don't find anything under that but there's been root disturb there's been soil disturbance, you can kind of put those clues all together to say, oh, maybe there was something here. It seems like it's been moved now. What what would cause that? So it kind of starts the questions, the questions rolling. Well, you know, we didn't go super in-depth into the plant biology side. If any of our listeners are interested, let us know and we can delve a bit deeper into the more like cellular plant biology, animal biology side of it all. Um, It's just super science and like science heavy and jargony. And I know not everyone wants to hear that. So um, it can be difficult for some listeners to listen to if they aren't familiar or have studied science in the past. But anyhow... Let's um, now dive in a bit further into the procedures involved with botanical evidence. So initially, like any other report or crime scene or investigative process, sorry – you're going to need to have a report by the end of it. So this is going to include photos. This is going to include the date, the time, the geographical coordinates of the scene. You know, this is going to include a description of the landscape. So what kind of trees are around, the plants, the flowers, the grass, all of that fun stuff. Land topography will be in there. And, you know, what the land is predominantly used for. So is it a park? Is it a residential area? Is it a xyz you know that kind of thing types of soil or any soil disturbances are also to be noted any habitats that are present whether this be you know animal or possibly humans living out in the woods you never know nowadays um Detailed descriptions of vegetation in the area are to be noted down as well as any extra physical characteristics of plants. So this can include smell, color, and even the degree of wilting. Moving a bit further now, you've done your initial report. You've taken your notes on your first crime scene. No evidence has been collected now. Um, You can further move on to the actual collection of evidence. And so evidence should be looked for in all possible places at a crime scene. And this means on land and if applicable in water. Um, This is on any objects that are around, any remains, um, in addition to samples from the stomach, upper airways, and fecal matter. And I'm not 100% positive if this would be done on site and how they would do this, or if this is more of an autopsy procedure, um, just the way that they had included uh, kind of the process of things. It made it sound like it happened on scene, but just my forensic brain kind of has me questioning that. I don't think you would do that sort of procedure on a crime scene, but that's besides the point. Um, just know that this evidence is collected at some point throughout this process. It should also be noted that control samples have to be, well, should be taken from um, the given surroundings. Typically, they have to be taken, but um, that will all depend on the department that's running it and how great they are or not. But when all of this has been collected and when it's time to transport the evidence back to the lab or you know wherever the evidence will be processed... The evidence needs to be appropriately packed in paper packaging and in sterile conditions to minimize any contamination, and this includes cross contamination. And, question of the day why paper packaging? Journey or Rebecca, do you know? <laughs> if not, it's okay.
1: <laughs> Isn't it to prevent condensation?
2: Yeah. Ding, ding. Yeah. Ding. My education came in handy. (laughs) Yeah, because plants can breathe, and, you know, there's going to be that release of CO2 and any sort of moisture that's present. If it's sealed in plastic, or in, I guess, plastic would be the only other practical option, or glass. Yeah, yeah. Um, Glass, you're creating that closed, sealed uh, condition. And so it's great that it's closed and sealed, but it's not great because it's going to destroy your sample at the end of the day. So when it, it really depends on what you're collecting and how, like when you need to do the sampling on that piece, will that determine, uh, paper, plastic, or glass? That's a whole other thing though. If listeners want to hear about um, crime scene collection and just steps at a crime scene, let us know too. We did a course – well, not a course, but a class on that, so that was fun. Um, But yes, anyways, off topic. Um, Each sample collected should be described in detail, and when collecting samples from the water, samples should be taken from both the surface and the bottom of whatever region you are collecting from, and any disturbed water should also be sampled. As mentioned briefly at the start of my spiel, um, there are various types of evidence that can constitute botanical evidence. And so first there's bark, which is present only on woody plants. And because it does not degrade as easily, and because both the anatomical and morphological features can easily be observed and analyzed time after time, this makes it a very useful source of evidence during criminal investigations and a pretty reliable source. You're not going to get that quick degradation of sample. You can view it all the time. Not all the time. You know what I mean though. Um, But next are seeds and fruits. So botanists will use characteristics like the shape, color, sheen, sculpture, and size for identification in addition to their flavor and smell. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that botanists are going around munching on all of the possible seeds and fruits that they're coming across on sites um, to get that taste aspect of it. Um, It's just something that helps them with it. I'm not sure how they would sample that, but just keep that in mind when um, you have botanical evidence. Now, next is soil. And this is a fun one for me. I spent way too much time this past summer learning about soil from my like really awesome field director when I was working in archaeology. It's so fascinating. There's just so much to soil. But the main use, you know, coming back into context for this forensic botany and forensic science, though, um, is to analyze the chemical composition as well as anything within the soil. So if you've got seeds, roots, plants, um, even, I mean, this wouldn't fall under forensic botany, but if you've got worms, bugs, insects, you know, entomology, take that over there. Other side of the lab, get those guys to figure that out. So it's just a a plethora of information that can be obtained from that. Um, And I learned soils are... Specific to regions as well. So if you have a different soil in one region than another, off more often than not, it's been moved. Or it's been like construction backfill. Someone's brought it in. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I learned way too much about soil this past summer. Anyways, as we mentioned earlier, plants are usually found in fragments. So botanists need to be able to pull these specific pre- fragments from plant litter or debris found on ground or in the area to assist them in their investigations. Um, Now, next are trees or timber evidence, and these are identified based on their physical characteristics, characteristics. Such as color or hardness, the anatomical structure of the wood itself, and growth rings present within. And so this can help botanists really identify the when of a crime scene, especially something that's happened maybe over a period of time. Say there was a body buried and it's been decomposing for X amount of time. Growth rings, because they follow, they typically follow a standard growth pattern and sequence, Um, if there's any fluctuation or inconsistencies within these rings, um, this could indicate something that's occurred. So say you have the large bands for the springtime when there's a lot of growth, and then your short bands for the colder months, if you, say, have two short bands or four short bands back-to-back, you know that at that time, there wasn't a lot of growth during those for growing years, so then that would make you question. Well, why is that the case? Is there something that's affecting the nutrients? Is there something that's preventing that? There could be a lot of things. So, just a lot to keep in mind and to consider when um, examining these. Lastly, there is pollen, which I will go into a little bit more into detail, and I'll explain why and how it relates to this case after. Um, But just for now, we'll go into the basics and then I'll touch on that. But scientists who study pollen and other spores are called palynologists, and forensic palynology is the study of modern and fossil spores, pollen, and other acidic-resistant plant remains in a legal context. But interestingly... Um, palynology has been used in cases of forgery, sexual assault, homicide, genocide, terrorism, drug dealing, assault and robbery, arson, hit and runs, counterfeiting, and illegal importation. So a bit of everything. It's, it's got a wide net that it can cast and, um, be useful for, but that also means that these experts need to be trained in all aspects of environmental analysis at this trace level for all, I mean, I guess you'd specialize, but there's so many different contexts that it could be used in. Um, maybe real-life situation, you could be working homicide case and spores that are present one day, um, and then the next day working to see if there's uh, illegal import- importing of certain goods coming in. Obviously, they'd be two probably different jurisdictions, but kind of the same point, same uh, concept. Uh, This science has been largely accepted in Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. However, it's yet to really be fully accepted and implemented elsewhere, Um, especially North America. Like, I've heard of cases where it's been used, but um, not an everyday, every crime kind of thing, unfortunately. I think that'd be cool, but obviously resources. Mm -hmm. And since forensic palynology is basically a subgroup of forensic botany, it uses, um, sorry, its uses in forensic contexts are quite similar to that of forensic botany. So it can be used to relate a suspect to a crime scene or a discovery scene. So, you know, if a body was moved and where they were found, that would be the discovery scene. It can relate an item found at scenes to a suspect, connect discovery scenes to crime scenes just vice versa of what I, I just said, I guess. Prove or disprove alibis, narrow down suspect lists, determine travel history of um, items, including drugs, and provide geographic and environmental information about where objects have found. Um, just a whole bunch of fun stuff. It could help locate clandestine graves and human remains. Um, all of that, like I said. But in Great Britain, the palynology still always – no, the palynologist will always collect and control – collect the control and evidence samples at scenes. They'll visit the relevant scenes of the case, so crime scene, discovery scene, um, and they'll undertake a vegetation survey. So they are the ones that are actually collecting their own data to then – analyze. like You don't have that CIS team um, collecting everything for you, shipping it to a lab and going, here you go, because then you just have everything out of context, essentially. Now, I kind of think of this as what, if you guys are familiar with the show Bones, what Jack Hodgins is. And while he's kind of like the the bug and slime particulate guy, um, he also does a lot of the Botanical evidence. So he will go to scenes, collect botanical evidence. He will collect, you know, like flowers, um, spores, tree samples, bark samples, all of that jazz and bring it back to the lab and do all of his fun experiments and fun stuff on that. But for palynologists to be able to fully contribute to the development of possible crime scene scenarios, they have to be deeply involved at the start of the investigation, like I was saying, and collect everything they need from the get go. From the get go, because so, if not, this can risk contamination or degradation of samples. And they they're the ones that know what they're looking for, so it makes the most sense for to send these experts out into the field to collect their samples rather than getting a third party to do so. Now for kind of slight bit of biology and science. Simply put, though, pollen is the dust that carries and spreads um, male plants' reproductive cells. So pollen is discharged from the male plant and continues to travel, often through air, to fertilize female plants that it may come in contact with. Um, I know here at my place the tree that's out front of our house during the springtime there's a given month where if it rains or there's strong winds you have like a coating of pollen on your car on everything so all of that yellow powdery goodness would be the pollen um the outer wall of the pollen grain is strong enough to prevent any major damage during its travel. And then the inner layer is similar to that of like an ordinary plant cell. And like I mentioned, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty uh, cellular level of these plants. But if you're curious, excuse me, but if you're curious, we'll put an image up on our website under our source images to kind of show you what We mean, and if you want more information, always reach out to us if you want, and we can delve further and have a discussion about that. But pollen grains are produced in large quantities and can be identified by genus or species based on their characteristic morphological structure, the number and type of apertures, their arrangement, grain size, and shape. And the presence of pollen grains in evidence allows us to answer the who, how, where, and when of a crime, which is quite incredible. And obviously this is case by case. You're not going to get that for every crime scene um, in a perfect world. We get the answers to all of those questions with one sample. But the individual particle. Particles of pollen themselves can't be seen really by the human naked eye. However, a variety of pollen can be examined and seen through the use of a microscope. And like I was saying, with the tree out front of my house, like if you have a lot of it all in a small area, you're going to be able to see that bit of that powdery dust. Um, I've seen trees, too. If you shake a tree with full of pollen, it like explodes almost. Sometimes though clumps of pollen can be found on insects, and this I always think of like the little pollen on bumblebees' feet that they'll carry around from flower to flower, and um, they help fertilize. Is that the right word? Those flowers. Um, But interestingly, only ten percent of plants spread pollen without the help of insects, um, which I didn't know prior to this. Um. Which means insects are pretty dang important. I hate them, but they're pretty dang important. Uh, Grasses and trees, though, are the most common plants that spread pollen through wind and air, rather through through insects. So you'll see, like the flowers, those obvious, not obviously, but those are the insect spreading ones. Um. But the usefulness of pollen as a forensic science tool results from their small size, their resistance to mechanical, biological, and chemical degradation, and this allows them to be preserved off of a whole preserved off a whole bunch of surfaces. So they can be collected off of various um, objects, people, places, things that sort of thing. These the various varieties of pollen as I've kind of briefly mentioned in conversation, can help indicate a specific region where a crime has been committed. So there are nearly 500,000 different varieties of spores and pollen that can act as a fingerprint of a crime. So because pollen is very durable, this becomes a great quality and asset in forensic evidence. And if it's properly stored, it can last honestly for centuries. Um, And when archaeologists find pollen spores in ancient tombs or artifacts, they can actually determine what that civilization ate for food or used to construct their houses with. Um, which is honestly really cool. Like I was not aware that pollen could survive that long, but lo and behold, we have thousands year old pollens.
0: It's super, super cool that like it can literally last for thousands of years, just like in a tomb and just. You can learn so
2: much from it. Just hanging out there, yeah. Literally. Um, and like other plant life um, evidence, stuff like that, pollen contains DNA. And this means that it can be used to change the traits of a plant. So some reasons for doing this could... Um, include increasing harvest production or to help certain plants survive in different or particular reasons. Sorry, wow, particular environments. Really butchered that one. So because of this, like if you're finding a spliced or an altered or whatever pollen type or plant evidence, this is going to be a piece of evidence to help narrow down your search. It's going to then bring you one step closer to finding out what happened. And the forensic palynologist is often asked to determine where an item or suspect has been, what they've been in contact with, or whether a particular scene has pollen that, you know, is characteristic of that place. So if there's pollen present that has been their DNA's been altered or something's off with it present in a different location, well why might that be? What is the reason for that and where do they go next to figure that out? Um, Pollen types can be identified by the shape, size and ornamentation of the outer wall. And I'll post a picture of what the outer walls look like as well on our source images, but to briefly explain it, um, it has pores and furrows that allow shrinking and swelling of the grain to happen. And so the changes in pollen size are usually caused by changes in moisture within the pollen um and then the outer walls of the spore is what makes pollen a useful tool for the investigators because this is what's resistant to these environmental changes um and or damage from the environment. So this means that like we were just talking about, you can have pollen that's thousands of years old and still retain their original wall texture and pattern and you can still extract viable evidence and like information from these sources um all flowering plants create pollen and so this also includes grasses trees and shrubs and when it comes to investigations another thing that can aid investigations is your clothing and this is actually a pretty good trap for pollen and the thicker the fabric is the more patterned it is you know the more it's worn so the more days in a row i guess your clothing's worn more pollen will be present or i guess any of those variables however they change will affect how pollen is present and how much pollen is present um by washing your clothing though with water and detergent this does end up inevitably removing the pollen from your clothing but it removes anywhere from 21 to 95% so It's kind of a hit or miss. It's quite a large range of – or a large window. So if you're out killing someone in a field and you automatically wash your clothes afterwards, don't assume there's going to be no pollen on it. Just maybe find a different means to throw your clothes out or just don't murder someone in a field, but to each their own. (laughs) Um. <laughs> when compared to conventional hand washing techniques too, um there's actually a high likelihood that pollen will remain on your hands several days after washing your hands, which I thought was kind of interesting. I wouldn't have thought that, especially with our like covid hand washing frenzy, like I would think that it would come off,
0: yeah, so the study that like looked into that, they compared like the proper way to wash your hands like during covid like they compared like the Mm -hmm. world health organization suggested hand washing technique and just like regular people washing their hands and when you used the um like the proper like covid technique Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word um that actually gets rid of a lot of the pollen but if you just like run your hands underwater like most normal people do which is disgusting um, yeah, it it will remain on your hands for several days, which is disgusting.
2: And you know what that means? If pollen is remaining on your hands for several days afterwards, mm-hmm. just you can you can piece that together. Okay, wash your nasty hands. Soak <laughs> the water. So gross. Twenty seconds. <laughs> Sing happy birthday, and you'll be done. Don't you, worry about it. We beg of you, please, <laughs> <laughs> please. <laughs> um. So yes, because of the, um, how useful clothing can be in this sort of situation, any clothing material should be analyzed as fast as possible. And this is also because pollen, um, can change over time in clothing and it can deteriorate and lose, you know, like up to 60% of its presence or contents, um, while on clothing. When it comes to geographic locations, though, pollen types do span various regions and seasons, and this can help investigators really that determine that location um, and time period that this crime may have occurred. And the interpretation of results can be difficult, especially if victims or suspects um, have gone to a whole bunch of different locations on the same day, collecting different types of pollen so like for example today i flew in from halifax so i have all of nova scotia spores from annapolis royal all of my clothing get picked up walking outside in hamilton ontario and then i'm off in markham at a massive greenhouse up and collecting spores from there so that now i've got three different locations within a time span of 12 hours um that will need to be analyzed and try and piece together. So it can be a bit of a puzzle for investigators if, say, they do have a case where this happens. Um, so again, just something to consider. A lot of things to consider with this. A lot, of, a lot of thinking. Um, but palynology largely entails a lot of time consuming light microscopy and this requires a high level of expertise. Therefore, forensic laboratories are starting to use, you know, more non-microscopic techniques. Um, and this is because pollen grains can be identified based on both chloroplast and nuclear DNA. However, this material makes it like really difficult if not impossible to repeat any any analyses, excuse me. So, if you're conducting analyses that are deteriorating your samples, why would you continue to do that? You know, like you're going to find alternative methods and ways um, to improve that process. But just jumping a bit now into dispersal patterns, because I know we want to hear all about that. Um, Pollen can be distributed by wind, water, human activity, animals, and or insects. Um, I'm sure... A whole lot of other ways than that. But those are like the main ones. And I think everything can then boil down into those categories. And just like a fun little tidbit is that a single male pine cone can produce anywhere between 100,000 to 1.5 million grains of pollen. And that's a single pine cone. Um, So this does give investigators a lot to work with, say, you know, you are by a pine tree and there are multiple pine cones. Um, That would help a lot. Um, But, you know, obviously this is going to differ from tree to tree. Not every single tree has that amount, but it typically is quite a large amount. Um, But pollen dispersed via wind is definitely forensically useful since They're generally aerodynamic, which means they can get pretty far. Uh, They preserve easily and are found on most surfaces well after after the flowering season. Um, I know sometimes if I keep my windows open too long in spring, I'll have like a coating of pollen inside of my house. Um, Maybe I'm not cleaning enough, but it lasts long after the the flowering season. (laughs) But more rare grains of pollen can be dispersed by winds hundreds to even thousands of kilometers away, which I thought was quite cool. Um, And then on the other hand, though, about 95% of pollen from plants um, who uses wind as their main dispersal method, uh, it would actually only fall within like two kilometers of the parent plant. Um, Typically, though, it falls within that 100 meter to two-kilometer range. Um, so it's not all the time you get those thousands of kilometer cases, but very interesting when you do. And when discussing the radius pollen can reach when being dispersed, there are a lot of factors that can influence it. And so this some of the things I can play a role are the height of release, so how high the pollen was released at, how high the tree or plant is, how they're being released, um, the strength of the wind and the presence of any updrafts or downdrafts, the weight, shape, and aerodynamics of the grain itself, any atmospheric conditions, so the humidity, the temperature, all of that, as well as any obstructions between the source plant and its surroundings. So are there massive buildings in the way? Are there other trees? Are there, you know, XYZ? That's going to impede on its movement. But pollen isn't just useful in forensic science. Um, It surprisingly has a whole lot of other applications. And this can be for taxonomists, for geologists, for geographers and archaeologists. And taxonomists use pollen profiles to investigate the evolutionary pathways of plants. While geologists will use pollen to analyze the date or to analyze and date rocks for petroleum exploration. Geographers will use pollen to model climate patterns and ar- archaeologists will use it to understand the diet and agriculture conditions of past civilizations. So um, with the archaeology work that I did, we learned about like finding, We, I myself didn't, but I had team members find like seed pods from like early archaic periods. So you have thousands of year old pods, and then that gives you a little bit of information into what that everyday life was like for those people who lived at that time. And now to kind of sum it all up and make an end to my speed round of this, um, but to bring it full circle back to the Massacre. I'm not even going to try to attempt the name. I'm so sorry. I'm, I, it's written Sabrenica. I want to say Sabrenica. I know it's not going to be that. Um, But the International Criminal Tribunal investigated the mass graves of the massacred civilian civilian population, and intelligence reported that war criminals, in order to hide the scale of executions, had transported their bodies from their original graves to smaller ones in unknown locations – so the purpose of this forensic examination was to link the secondary graves, sorry, the secondary graves with the primary sites by comparing samples collected from the soils, from the bodies, and clothing, um, you know, among other areas. But this was in terms of their polymorph palynomorph content. So how much pollen there was, what type of pollen there was, um, and where it came from. And so on. So, this case is thought to be the first in which such environmental evidence was used systematically in an investigation of serious war crimes, which I thought to be very interesting. And to kind of wrap it all up, even though I said I was going to do that a second ago, um, when looking at botanical evidence as a whole, it really should be understood in the context of the case, like I mentioned before. Um, and in the face of the continuous development of molecular biology and the use of you know, sophisticated technology and equipment to analyze these things, the question then arises as to whether traditional botany still has a future in this judicial system, or if that change needs to be seen um, moving forward. And unlike genetic materials, botanical materials can be analyzed repeatedly and expensive re- uh, equipments and reagents are not required. That being said, though, um, it is possible to degrade samples. So not every sample can be analyzed over and over and over again. Um, but in many cases, identifying plants based on their genetic material is not possible at a species level. And this is due to there being you know, no reference material that exists. There are a whole lot of plants that exist and a whole lot of species of those or gee, I don't even know how taxonomy works anymore but within within groups within groups so on and so on and so on forever um but yeah that's 20 minutes remaining in the countdown i i was worried for a second um yeah it was really interesting to i, I was definitely on the back burner on the research on this but it it's it's cool to see the overlap in how just pollen itself is so influential and how it can have a huge impact, not just on criminal cases, but in a vast amount of uh, disciplines and fields.
0: Yeah, it's kind of crazy how something like so small can have mm-hmm. such a huge role and contain so much information and it's like mm-hmm. not even visible to the naked
2: eye. Right. And like, I feel like most people wouldn't think to i don't know like say it's spring fever to swab the inside of a nose during that Mm -hmm. time just to even see if there are pollen samples like in your upper respiratory and all those other biological systems but yeah Yeah. just the the places it can attach to and how it could be traced and it's just quite interesting
0: yeah it is really really neat um Thank you for telling us all about the botanical and palynological evidence. I (laughs) don't know if that's how you say that word. Um, So our next topic for our 50th episode, um, we're going to discuss the Victoria Klimby case and forensic parasitology, um, both of which we were actually introduced to in our forensic parasitology class in university. So it'll be kind of fun for us to do like a little throwback to that class. And um, this case is super interesting. So I'm very excited to do a little bit more of a deeper dive into what actually happened.
2: Mm -hmm. And especially for our 50th episode. I know that's so crazy. It's pretty cool. I think it'll be a good discussion. It'll be a good discussion one because, you know, you'll come to learn in our case, I won't spoil too much of it, but, um, it's not as it seems, so there yeah. will be a lot of discussion.
1: There's a little bit of a plot, <laughs> yeah. as much as that can happen in a
2: true crime science <laughs> case. Yeah. In a parasitology case, yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, it's exciting, and I'll have you thinking. Um, but I do have a joke for you guys. It's kind of poor as
2: per usual as per usual I would those ex- are the best kind, I would expect honestly. nothing less than, or nothing more than that so. exactly
0: Um. so why do plants hate math oh I think I've heard this one why <laughs> because it gives them square roots
2: square roots <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's
2: a math joke and a plant joke that was good. Square hey, thanks. Um, do you think some plants do have square roots? I've only ever seen like tubular roots. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I
0: feel like they are more like circular, but they might be able to like grow in the shape of a square, like, like how they grow like watermelons in, like in a square pod. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, i'm thinking like if a tree is growing down and then it like reaches a coffin or whatever it's gonna like move and then like maybe it'll make a square of the coffin you know
1: oh yeah like around yeah 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 yeah. but it might still yeah, be, i like, think in terms of shapes that roots can mm, make yeah they could probably do that yeah. but
0: they might not be like square in like diameter i you, gotcha yeah i see what you're putting down okay um rebecca do you want to tell our listeners where they can find us
1: i would love to so people can find us on instagram youtube and facebook all at what the forensics uh we are most active on our facebook and instagram so definitely check those out um however Journey has been working really hard to update our YouTube. So we are getting everything posted on YouTube. So that's going to be another platform soon uh, that you can check out our videos with a fun little visual to go with it. Um, In addition to those, uh, you can check out our Twitter, which is at what the forensics. That's a lie. (laughs) At WT Forensics PC, or go to our website, forensics.ca where you're going to find all sorts of information about us, uh, the hosts, as well as the sources that we talk about every episode and kind of where we found everything and source images to go along with every episode because visuals are fun. On that note,
2: we we don't have photos for every episode, but every episode we think to add photos. We add them. So definitely, it's like a little Easter egg surprise. You never know when you're going to get a photo. So yeah, if we feel they're <laughs> relevant,
1: then the photos are added. Yes, yes exactly. And then finally, if you want to get in contact with us to kind of give us any questions, comments, uh, concerns, you can email us at whattheforensics at gmail.com. And finally, uh, we'd love if you guys gave us some reviews. We love to read them. We love to read your feedback and see what you guys are enjoying, um, what you might want to see more of. So, Yeah. yeah.
0: Thank you. Um, Well, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week.